You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, it's a privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name is Johannes. Um, a few of you may know Josh Duell. Um, he planted a church up in Kelowna, and that's where I live and I attend. Um, but it's just amazing to be here with you this morning. I've heard so much about you, and um, yeah, just loving to be here this morning. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So opens a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a very apt description for life in the 21st century. And I think with maturity comes the recognition that life is both incredibly good and extremely hard at the same time. Dickens actually goes on. He says, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light and it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and it was the winter of despair. And I think we find that to be true if we think about it in our day-to-day lives, is it not? Technology today just makes our lives so much quicker and easier and there's so many benefits to it. And at the same time, it is causing us to become what some people are labeling one of the most loneliest generations. Our access to information has increased dramatically. Think about uh, the internet, uh, Google, our smartphones, all of which have occurred relatively recently. And yet so have anxiety and depression. And we're most, one of the most medicated generations ever as well. It's also hard to remember sometimes that the benefits of this modernity is a largely Western experience. While poverty is still a huge issue, and corrupt dictators are not a thing that's relegated merely to the books and movies, but they are a reality. And slavery, too, we think of that as being abolished, but around the world today there are more people in slavery, particularly the sex trafficking, than ever before. And this is our world. And it's more than just the mere coexistence of both good and evil, beauty and struggle. But as followers of Jesus, I think we find this tension because the culture around us is so radically opposed to everything that we love, believe, and value. And whether you're here today, you know, as a teacher, a nurse, a CEO of some tech company, a plumber, or a stay-at-home mom, there is this regular and constant battle for our hearts and minds. It's what Jesus calls that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we feel that tension. The struggle, however, is not just out there somewhere and it's us versus them. Even within the community of faith, it is hard and following Jesus comes with its own challenges. I've heard you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount the last few weeks and looking at a few passages there. And uh, I remember a few years ago, I was preaching through Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount and just thinking... I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of this community? I mean, this is incredible. I mean, radical forgiveness and generosity. I think all of us would agree we want to be recipients of such a community. But where the rubber meets the road, 
is when we're not necessarily willing to be active participants in bringing that reality into existence. How many of us don't voluntarily turn the other cheek or forgive or seek to love those people that treat us as their enemies? Our very surroundings around us makes it hard to become disciples of Jesus. Because we don't get to learn these things and mature in a vacuum. We're in the real world where there are provocative messages around us and people cutting off in traffic. And yet we await the fullness of the kingdom of God when the lion will lay down with the lamb, the weapons of war will be refashioned into tools of peace and people will again dwell together in peace with God. But we're not there yet. We're here in the in-between, in the waiting. So the world is a place of both incredible beauty and great evil. Society brings many benefits, but obviously radically opposes us. And the community of faith is one of the best things you'll ever be a part of, and one of the hardest things you ever do. So how do we live in a time and place that doesn't feel like home, that we're waiting for something more, a place that we don't fully feel like we belong to? The biblical authors have a name for this experience, and it's called exile. And so if you turn with me to Jeremiah 29, we're going to look at a passage, a letter really, written to a people in exile. What I want to do is going to give you some brief context for this passage, and then we're going to uh, unpack it, and then we're going to talk about what that means for you and I in our day-to-day lives here in the 21st century. So let me just read 29 and beginning at verse 1. I'm just going to read 1 to 4 as kind of uh, some context for us. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is one of the few waves of people that were taken into exile from Babylon, and Jeremiah the prophet is still in Jerusalem, but he's writing a letter to them. This was after King Jehoiakim and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. And the letter was sent by the hand of messengers, and it says this, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, before we get into the passage itself, if you think about it, how would you feel if you've been forcefully uprooted and taken to an entirely different place? Now, I've moved cities. I grew up in the UK, uh, moved to Canada, spent 10 years in Abbotsford, and then moved to Kelowna. But this is so much more than just a different culture, a different city, a different place. There's more going on here. So a few few details to note. Firstly, in the biblical language, exile denotes moving away from the presence of God. Right at the beginning, the garden is kind of the epicenter of the presence of God. It's described in temple language in which heaven and earth overlap. And God and the humans dwell and walk together in perfect harmony. But then they were exiled from the garden because they didn't trust God, which led to their disobedience. 
But God then took Abraham, he made a nation out of him, and gave them a land, which again then is described in like garden-like imagery. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And he did that because he wanted again to dwell among them. However, and this is the second time, they are again being exiled, moved away from the very presence of God. Now here's why leaving the presence of God and, and this temple language is significant. You think about it, if you're the nation of Israel, you're a distinct people, separated for God and apart by him, and your whole life revolves around the temple. All of your practices, all your traditions, this is how you stay in relationship with God. And how are you supposed to do that if you can't go to the temple and offer sacrifices? You've lost your entire identity. So this is more than just moving place. For them as the people of God, this is bringing that identity into challenge. And secondly, note where they've been taken. They've been taken to Babylon. Now you may remember that this occurs again in Genesis, where... Um, the people have been exiled, and it gets worse and worse and worse. We have the flood, and then we hear the story of these people that gather themselves together and build a temple, a, a, a tower, sorry, a tower unto the heavens to make a name for themselves. And that, again, is at Babylon. We call it the Tower of Babel. It is the same place. And it becomes this kind of visual representation of a people rebelling against God and creating a name for themselves. And so the people of God have been taken out of the very epicenter of his presence and moved as far away as possible. And definitely not an environment conducive to following him. And the last thing is these people are given a false sense of hope. If you look back in, in uh, chapter 28, I'm just going to summarize it here for us. We don't have time to read it. Basically what happens is, an, is another prophet arises and says, look, God's going to break the chain of Nebuchadnezzar, and you guys are going to be coming back into the land within two years. Now imagine you've just got to exile. You're thinking, how long are we going to be here? I mean, what does this mean? How do we even go about our day-to-day -day life now? And then you hear maybe the word trickles down, you're going to be back in two years. What does that change? about the way you live. Maybe you're not going to build down the roots that you would have before. And these people are wondering, you know, about God's promises, and then they hear this. But God has to come and say, that is not the message. That was a lie. There's a message of hope that was false and not from me. So can you relate to that sense at all? I mean, you and I as believers, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, but we live in a world in which God seems so far from. In our day-to-day lives, secularism rules, not God. It feels like he's absent. And we're not in the center of the garden. We're not in the place of the presence of God. We're in the epicenter of a people that have turned their back on him and are in active rebellion. And how many lies do we hear of how false messiahs will save us and give us meaning and purpose and life? These things surround us each and every day.
So again, life is hard, and we experience terrible evil and incredible goodness. But we're living in a reality that is far from perfect, far from ideal. So how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, let's see what message God has for these people. Turn with me to verse 5. And just imagine in your brain, what would you expect him to say to these people? He says this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And praise Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, remember you, a few things jump out to me. Firstly, this is not what I expected. And secondly, this is going to take a long time. In comparison to the, the two years that maybe we've heard about, he's talking about planting gardens. He's talking about getting married, having children, giving those children in marriage, seeing your grandkids. That's decades. It is a message of longevity. Secondly, it has an element of stability and rootedness to it. These people are building lives, building homes, planting gardens, having families. It doesn't seem like they're just waiting to escape. There's an element of being settled. And finally, there is an element of normality about it. It's, it's very ordinary. Just do life. But we're in exile. We're away from the presence of God. I think I would have expected an epic message about survival. Protect yourselves. Build walls. Or maybe at the very least, just put your head down and do your time like it's a prison sentence. Now, to really understand this passage and the impact of it, we need to understand the center portion here. There is a hint here in the middle where he says, multiply there and do not decrease. I think that's a hint at the be fruitful and multiply from the Genesis narrative. And what it's meant to do is bring into mind all that we know from that passage. That we are meant to co-rule with God. To spread the goodness of the garden to the ends of the earth. The tending and keeping in the garden that they were to do is actually priestly language. And it's picked up later on. That's what the priests were doing around the temple. And God says that he's, as a nation... He wants Israel to be a kingdom of priests, interceding 
and spreading the goodness and being a conduit of his love to the people around them. It was never meant to just be about them as a nation. The water that came into the Garden of Eden split and then watered all the land surrounding around it. The goal was always beyond the garden. And remember in Genesis 12, God called Abraham and made him a nation for what reason? To be a blessing to the nations. God's vision has always been the nations. And he wanted these people to be that conduit. And so here, they're in exile. They're far from the garden. They're far from even the promised land, which is meant to be an image of the garden. They're separated from all that they know and all that is God, or so it seems. But in here, he gives them a vision to keep that mentality before them of their mission as the people of God. They are meant to be a blessing, to spread blessing. So why is this important to have this in the forefront of our minds and for them as well? Firstly, this is the trajectory of history. This is the arc of the biblical narrative. If you go all the way ahead to Revelation 21, it talks about God coming down again to dwell with his people. God is on a mission to dwell with his people. And secondly, you and I as humans were imitators. This is why they say you're the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. We will be influenced by the culture around us. That's a given. Because the message of the world is so present everywhere that time alone will allow it to function like a magnet and draw us in. And so we cannot afford to be apathetic about our lives. We must have this alternate vision that we must constantly come back to. For the vision that we have for the world will dictate how we live within it. And I don't know about you, but I find in myself there is a tendency to withdraw from the world, to avoid engaging, to kind of hide and act in self-preservation. And again, that's what we might expect God to say to this people. Just hunker down, put in time, and eventually I'll bring you back into the land. But he doesn't say that. He puts before them this vision that God has for the world. They are meant to engage the culture and seek its well-being. Notice that last part. They're not just meant to live ordinary lives. There is that. But there's more. He says, to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf, acting like priests. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This, remember, is the, this is Babylon. This is a place that's in active rebellion against God and has this imagery and will continue to throughout the Ark of Scripture. And he's saying to the people that are there, pray for them. Seek their well-being. Seek their flourishing. 
Firstly, I think that's remarkable that we can still experience human flourishing in exile. We can get this taste of it, a taste of the garden. Well, secondly, this is a very outward focus, not just an inward one, not just a matter of survival. It is about life-giving, about experiencing receiving life and giving that. This is the rebellious city where we are to pray and seek for it. Think about your city here, your neighborhoods, your communities, your workplaces, the people you spend time with. Maybe you have a group that you go hiking with, trail running, mountain biking, maybe play sports. Do we have this vision for those people? Do we pray for them? Do we want what's best for them? Are we actively seeking that? Or are we just putting in time? So how are we meant to be a blessing to the nations? How is our life to demonstrate this life of the kingdom, this abundant life of the garden? Well, let's go back and look at those three things briefly. Firstly, longevity. Play the long game. Don't just expect the status quo here in Canada to suddenly change in our favor, because it probably won't. On a personal level, fruit doesn't occur overnight. Eugene Peterson has written a book called Discipleship is a Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It is obedience, and it is long, and it requires commitment. You've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the end of that Jesus says it's not just about listening, not just hearing his words, not just taking on board and agreeing with it mentally. Go, yep, that's what we should be doing. But it requires practice. Paul talks about this, about training. He uses this analogy of what it means to mature in Jesus. It's hard, and it requires time. And again, as we said at the beginning, this doesn't unfortunately occur in an ideal environment. There are many distractions, many stumbling blocks around us. It is a lifelong journey. We will never arrive before we die. Jesus talks about this, a narrow gate, and a few people that find it. But there is life to those that do, not just in quantity, in eternity, but there's a quality to it as well. Jesus says his goal was to, to come that we may have life and have it more abundantly. So again, if we are short-term minded, then we are going to live differently. Our time horizon will dictate our level of engagement. So longevity. Secondly, stability. It's not just about time. You can be somewhere for a long time and not have roots. But there is a certain commitment to this place, building houses, living in them, having children and grandchildren, and actually seeking to be a blessing to those around you. Personally, 
You can follow Jesus a long time. You can come to church regularly, and there can be very little development and maturity to show. Practically, we live in a very transient culture. People are constantly moving, which is great. It provides many benefits, but again, it can lead often to superficiality, particularly in relationships. I found that even just moving to, I moved around a lot in my life, and the last couple of years, I realized I wanted to be rooted somewhere, because it's so easy to have tons of acquaintances and people you do stuff with, but to build those deep relationships is deeply valuable. And not just with those in the community of faith, which is incredibly important, but also with the people around us. Again, the people we work with, the people in our neighborhoods, the people that we do activities with. If you don't put down roots, you're not gonna to get to know people, you're not gonna build community. And if we don't do that, how are people meant to see that our life is different? How are they meant to observe that we can experience hope and joy and peace despite the chaos and the evil around us? What if you and I were to become the most friendly, the most generous, and the most hospitably welcoming people wherever we are? What would that mean for you and I? What would that mean for the people around us? Because they're yearning too. They're disconnected. They live in a transient culture just like us. They're feeling the effects of it, loneliness. When you plant roots, you begin to flourish. And your life can take on the life of the Garden of Eden. And again, that garden was always meant to be outflowing. It was always meant to grow. The benefits, the blessings were always meant to flow through us to other people. So don't be afraid of commitment. It's longevity, it's stability, and finally normality. I can get quite idealistic, and it's very easy to be idealistic about life, and even life with Jesus. I've been to the conferences, I've heard the talks, I've read the books, and it's very easy to get excited about sharing our faith and making an impact in the world and the people around us. And we live for those moments, those stories, those testimonies, which are, which are fantastic, and we should be sharing those. But those are special mountaintop moments sometimes. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but I'm trying to uplift the faithfulness of just living an ordinary life. Don't underestimate the power of God to work through that. Because God can use those moments. Someone once said it was ministry in the cracks. Ministry that occurs when it's not scheduled, when it's unstructured, you run in somebody at the store, you end up chatting with your neighbor over the fence, you talk to a colleague over lunch, you're out for a mountain bike, or out for a run, you're dropping the kids off at school. These are moments where God can flow through us, just normal, 
everyday stuff that happens to all of us. Sharing the good news of Jesus is incredibly important, and we need to verbalize that. But showing that you believe in God by your actions and by the way you live your life is just as powerful. And showing that true joy and peace can be experienced in a tumultuous world is incredibly appealing to people because they have no hope and everything that they cling to to try and give them stability and security just keeps falling away. So let me ask you this. Does your life demonstrate that following Jesus is not just the right way to live, but that following Jesus is the best way to live? Now, in closing, we're not the nation of Israel. We're not in Babylon. We're on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. He tore the veil, creating access for us into the very presence of God. You and I now are that temple. You and I are the garden oasis in a dry wilderness. To use Sermon of the Mount language, we are the light of the world. We are the city that is on a hill and cannot be hidden. There is a wellspring of life within us, just like the rivers in the garden, and they are meant to be overflowing. But we are in exile. Peter uses this language in the New Testament. And we're very conscious of the reality of the world around us. It is the best of times and it is the worst of times. Evil has not yet been destroyed. But I want you to walk away with this hope that even in exile, we can have a taste of the kingdom. We can experience the goodness of the garden even though we're awaiting for his fullness to arrive. So do not withdraw. Do not just merely survive. Our survival here, he says, is actually achieved by seeking the well-being of the people around us. He says, pray to Yahweh on the behalf of the city, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You will find peace. You will find joy when you seek to be a blessing to those around you. So be willing to invest that time. Don't be afraid to commit to build a life that is rooted to a place, to people. And it's often not your greatest moments that are most impactful, but the accumulation of your everyday living. And secondly, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, there is hope. There is so much goodness around us in the world, so much beauty. And that comes from a good God. And there's so, so much more to be experienced. All of your best moments, times out of about a thousand, are to come. And yes, there is evil around you, and it will get worse. And for many, that evil, disastrous, destruction of experience will turn into an eternity of that. But it doesn't have to be yours this morning. Life can be found in the person of Jesus. And that hope for tomorrow, for the reality of our world is not always going to be this way, can give us hope 
for today. I'm going to invite the band up. And I want to leave you with this. How are you going to respond to this? What are the Spirit of God pinpointing in your life? What is a behavior that needs obedience or needs conforming to the way of Jesus? What is an area in which you need to trust and surrender to him? I encourage you to think about that as we leave this morning. As always, there are four ways to respond. Firstly, in prayer, I believe there's going to be a couple here. The other side of the stage, if you want to come and pray. We're going to share communion together. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, come, partake. This is the hope of the life that we have. If you've not yet believed, then this is not yet for you. You can come and respond by giving. We give faithfully back to God all that he has been faithful to give us. If you're new, then there's no obligation to do so. It's a joy that you're here. And finally, by song. There's something powerful about verbalizing and singing praise and worship to God for all that he has done and blessed us with. So please stand and let us sing together.